Hello and welcome to our special episode of God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any parallels with gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm music critic and Nexus 6 in his original packaging, Giles Goff. And I'm source maker and basic pleasure model, Phil Coleman. And for the 40th anniversary of its original release, we'll be looking at Blade Runner. Phil, what did you think the first time you watched this film? It's been a long time since I first watched this film, but I'll, I'll always remember just feeling like I'd watched something that was completely i don't know how to put this really into words like you just can't replicate haha replicate what blade runner does for modern cinema um it was just so ahead of its time such a a homage to the kind of films that we'd had in the previous with its film noir sort of like setting as well and and the way it told its story so it felt familiar but it also felt so far into the future and i'll never forget the first time i watched it. it i just was open mouth like wow i can't believe i've had the opportunity to watch this film this is well this well, i've just watched blade runner i mean what, what what more can you say you know it was it was amazing do you know what i kind of i was a bit screwed on that first time i watched it because somebody said to me this is the best sci-fi film ever now that's <laughs> some might say that is setting some unrealistically high expectations for a person going into a into a film. Do you know what I mean? It's amazing, but if you if you tell somebody going into it, this is the best film ever, their expectations are going to be like through the roof, and I, kind of whatever comes through is going to be a dis- bit disappointing. Do you know what I mean? I can imagine as a viewer as well, you'd be like, "But what if I don't like it?" You know, like <laughs> <laughs> does, does that, that does that what make, does that say about me as a person? Does that does that mean I? suck at watching films like you know it's yeah. am i doing something wrong basically blade runner is like the hamlet of film texts you know it's kind of dull to watch if you're going in cold but if you're studying it flipping it you can get absolutely miles and miles of stuff out of it yeah it's it's you, there's so much to unpack from that film it's got it's so multi-layered as stories go in terms of like analysis as well it's it's such a great film such a definitely. good film definitely <laughs> All right, now it's time for... Remember, Phil's facts! Remember to breathe, please. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, so I'm Phil's... a Nexus 6, I don't need to breathe, it's all good. All right, yeah, but you do only have, like, you know, a few years. Let's start off with the obvious. Blade Runner is a 1982 science fiction film directed by Ridley Scott, starring Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer, Sean Young, and Edward James Olmos. It is an adaptation of Philip K. Dick's 1968 novel... Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? The film is set in a dystopian future Los Angeles of 2019 in which synthetic humans known as replicants are bioengineered by the powerful Tyrell Corporation to work on space colonies and when a fugitive group of advanced replicants led by Roy Batty, played by Hauer, escapes back to Earth, burnt-out cop Rick Deckard reluctantly agrees to hunt them down, played by Harrison Ford. So, fact one, director Sir Ridley Scott there, and you have to use the sir, obviously, because, yeah. you know, he's, after a bit, like, if you don't use the sir, like, he, well, he just doesn't invite you to his parties anymore. And like, See, in my head, I call him Sir Ridder, um, <laughs> you know, or... Or it's just, or just Ridder, you know, it's for just, his street it's just, friends. It's just, you know? ri- it's just ah, Rids with a Z. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's, how we, that's what we call him on the street, at least. Anyway, especially in Warrington. <laughs> you know what it is. So anyway, him <laughs> and uh, director of photography uh, Jordan Cronenworth uh, achieved the famous shining eyes effect, as in what would um, mm-hmm. for viewers at home, what would denote if you are a replicant you would have shiny yeah. eyes by using a technique invented by fritz lang of of metropolis no. fame known our as boy fritz our boy fritz mate wow Fr- i can't really make that into more streaks it already ends in a z so you know <laughs> um <laughs> as the uh, it's a process known as the the schuften process 
uh, where light mm-hmm. is bounced into the actor's and actress's eyes off a piece of half-mirrored glass mounted at a 45-degree angle to the camera. That is proper old-school practical. I love that. Mm. That's wicked. What gets me as well is like the, the, the technology existed there as well to be able to do it sort of like as a, as a special effect. Mm. Like it wasn't uncommon to have like, you know, augmented lighting effects in, in yeah. a film, but the fact that he did it that way is just so natural and so timeless. I think that's yeah, great. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Definitely. According to Rutger Hauer's biography, the final confrontation between Rick Deckard and Roy Batty was to have been fought in an old gym and apparently was going to be using <laughs> martial arts such as Kung Fu or something similar. Mm-hmm. Um, Hauer disliked the idea, saying it was a little bit too Bruce Lee, and he also didn't yeah. know Kung Fu anyway, so <laughs> it's kind of- kind of a non-starter you know yeah um, it's a bit like and now guys this last scene is going to take place on horseback you're like okay it's a bit john waney and um uh also i can't ride a horse <laughs> you know? yeah i've never ridden, kind of i've just never ridden a horse you know what i mean i just <laughs> don't know what to tell you mr scott and uh howard claims to have come up with the idea of batty uh chasing deckard through that dilapidated mm-hmm flats oh it's where it's the place that belongs to jf sebastian that's it yeah it's the guy the place where he's got all them little replicant toys and such in it yeah that's the one which felt very ai to me it, as, spielberg. In, as in uh yeah. spielberg yeah yeah with the yeah, yeah. joel osman and jude lauren yeah that's well the see thing is the J, uh, jf sebastian with the the little sort of uh toys that is like a microcosm of the story as a whole you know the fact that yeah. somebody is effectively building people to entertain him, to keep him company, yeah. is a bit like human beings and Tyrell Corporation building robots to be all manner of things, including basic pleasure models, you know? Yeah, you can see like a, a creative parallel there for, sure, for yeah, certain. Yeah, definitely. You know. uh, so a female gymnast was hired as a stunt double for Daryl Hannah in the scene where Pris attacks Rick Deckard. But director Sir Ridley Scott rehearsed the scene so many times that though when they were ready to actually shoot the scene, she was knackered. <laughs> she couldn't do anything. So the scene was actually filmed with a male gymnast that they've been able to yeah. track down during the lunch break. Well, <laughs> just, just track down just, a male gymnast I mean, I mean, during it, lunch break. This sort of begs many mm. questions. Where were you filming? Was there, <laughs> was there an overabundance of gymnasts? Did they have to be male, or was he just the one that was free? You know, like I don't yeah. know. It's, it's uh, yeah, just, just it's, a, it's a bit like how. Um, in flash dance for the uh, for the big sort of finale scene, they got a uh, a male break dancer called Crazy Legs to uh, to sort of stick on a wig <laughs> and then perform the spinning round thing. That's brilliant. Do, do you know, I, if I was in the career that would be dance, I would really hope mm-hmm. to be called Crazy Legs. That's 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 something to aspire to, right? That's the dream. <laughs> and last one from me today. Originally, the novel "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep" was set in 1992, although later editions. Brought the date forward to 2021. The filmmakers initially identified the date as 2020, but settled on 2019 because 2020 sounded too much like the common term for perfect vision, 20 slash 20. Yeah, 2020 vision. Just a shame at how how 2020 actually bloody well turned out, but there we go. (laughs) You know what I mean? Awesome. Thank you for those those facts. They were brilliant. And I'll tell you something. Like I say, I did an essay on Blade Runner and Fight Club and postmodernism. So there was a point where I knew flipping everything about this about this uh, film and, and all the things around it. <laughs> and the fact that you managed to find me some trivia that I didn't know already is really quite impressive. So give yourself a pat on the back for that one. Our next guest is a walking trivia machine and was an absolute joy to speak to. 
before we start, I just want to apologize for the audio quality on this one, guys. It's not quite up to our usual standards, which is why it sounds like I'm conducting the interview from the bottom of a well. I'll let him introduce himself. Oh, hi. My name is uh, is Andy Godfrey, and for the last 36 years, I've been in full-time Christian work, uh, working primarily as an evangelist with different organizations. I've also pastored two churches, and I spent 10 years traveling to Eastern Europe, lecturing in Bible schools uh, on evangelism. But outside of that, I, uh, I'm something of a movie obsessive. I'm sitting in a room at the moment that has got 3,000 movies in it on Blu-ray and DVD. Uh, the Walls, and my home are wall-to-wall posters from movies and my best friend tells me this is why I live on my own. So you can see my life gets quite full and uh, I just enjoy um, being being uh, around the cinema and watching movies and it's great because I'm able to combine my faith with my passion for movies because I write for two Christian publications. So I write for Sorted Magazine which is uh, the UK's leading Christian magazine for men you can get it in some branches of WH Smiths. You can get it online. Uh, I also write for the Good News newspaper, which is an evangelistic newspaper uh, aimed entirely at people who don't believe in God. It's a newspaper for people who have no faith, for people who say God doesn't exist. Uh, so that's really good as well. So I get to combine my passion for movies uh, and my passion for Jesus uh, in those two areas by writing about films for Christian publication. Andy, we are really grateful to have you. Thank you so much. Okay, let's get straight to it. How did Blade Runner come about? Well, if if you remember back in the late uh, 70s, early 80s, there was a whole slew of science fiction films. We had Superman, we had Star Wars, and studios were looking for properties that were set either in outer space or had a science fiction element to them. The studio that produced Blade Runner, uh, somebody had, a long time before this, uh, sent in a script based on a novel by Philip K. Dick called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? This is a story of a detective in the near future. In fact, it's a it's a post-apocalyptic future. There's been a world war. Some androids have starting to run amok. They've gone a bit wild. They're starting to kill people. The book is very, very violent. The book is even more violent than the film. A script had been written uh, based on this book by Philip K. Dick. And Ridley Scott, who, of course, was a very hot property at the time because he just released Alien to incredible acclaim. I mean, Alien had been one of the biggest blockbusters um, of recent years. Uh, so Ridley Scott got hold of this script, uh, read it, thought he could do something with it, got hold of a couple of screenwriters. They changed a few things from the novel, decided to give it a go because of the popularity of science fiction films at that particular time. Now, the most notable difference, Giles, between uh, the novel and the film is uh, the absence of the term Blade Runner. You won't find the term Blade Runner in the novel. The movie was actually inspired by the name of a 1979 novella uh, by William S. Burroughs, uh, where he talks about, uh, where he describes bounty hunters as Blade Runners. So it's actually, although everybody says Blade Runner is based on Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick, actually there's a lot of William S. Burroughs in there. Also, the word replicant, which is used in the film to describe the, these animals Androids that have gone amok is not is in neither book. Um, in fact, in Philip K. Dick's book, they're called Andes, um, not A N D Y A N D I. Um, so that's another major shift from the book to the film. They had to obviously make it a little bit more dramatic. The book is very violent, but it has some very long descriptive passages. It's a little bit slow, hard going in places. I find the novel. 
Um, very typical of Philip K. Dick's sort of surreal work where he, he, he goes off a great tangent. So the story had to be honed down a little bit. But this is why really it came about, because Ridley Scott was looking for a follow-up to Alien. And uh, studios like Warner Brothers uh, were looking for science fiction properties because that was a big thing at the time. Um, yeah, so then... Um, they got around to casting it, of course, and uh, uh, famously Harrison Ford, uh, who was perhaps the biggest name in Hollywood at the time, uh, was cast as uh, Deckard, the detective sent out to get these uh, these rogue replicants, as they're called in the film. Harrison Ford has been so reluctant to talk about this film. He did not like it. He did not have a good time filming it. Um, he didn't enjoy being on rain-soaked sets for day after day. And this is Indiana Jones, remember? This is Han Solo. And he particularly didn't like the fact that he was asked to record a narration. You know, it was a dark, rainy night in the city, and uh, I was on my way home. And, and Ford hated it. Um, and he wouldn't talk about the film for years. In fact, he didn't talk. The film came out in 1982. For 10 years, Harrison Ford stayed silent. He wouldn't do any publicity for the film. He wouldn't go out uh, on junkets to advertise it. He eventually did speak to it about it in 1992, talked about the frequent disputes that he'd had with Ridley Scott, the fact that he didn't like the voiceovers and so on. But he has now come round. And in recent years, again, he started to talk about the film as well to a much more positive image of a much more positive representation of the film. He, 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 he actually now will talk about it if you press him. And the script had been bouncing around for a while, but I think it had been deemed unfilmable because simply the special effects did not exist to, to, mm. to bring Philip K. Dick's uh, work to life. And now, of course, with the advent of Star Wars, it was all about special. Even James Bond, even the Bond people, um, delayed uh, making For Your Eyes Only and made Moonraker instead, which they set in outer space because of the influence of Star Wars. So everybody was wanting to be in outer space. So obviously, quite famously, um, Blade Runner has an original cut and a, a director's cut and a, a final cut. So I th from what I remember, it's one of the first. It's one of the first films I know that had a director's cut. So why was there a director's cut? And how is it different from the original version? So um, Ridley Scott likes his director's cuts. You may know that he released a director's cut of Alien. The interesting thing about the, both the director's cut of Alien and the director's cut of Blade Runner is that they are both shorter than the original film. You think he's going to be adding to it, but they're actually just a couple of minutes shorter. So when Ridley Scott made the director's cut, he took the decision to take out the uh, narration. It doesn't need a narration. It doesn't need the plot being explained to the audience. The audience are intelligent enough to work out what's going on uh, on their own. The second thing that Ridley Scott did with the director's cut was he, he changed the rather happy, soppy, soapy ending uh, to the film. So in the first film, um, Harrison Ford has fallen in love with a girl called Rachel, but we see the two of them flying off together into the sunset uh, through uh, out, of the, out of the dense city they've been living in into a beautifully wooded, forested area. And in fact, those shots that you you see in the original film of them flying away through through forests and trees and alongside mountains they were actually taken from stanley kubrick to shining those are actually the original shots that kubrick used for the opening of the shining scott just borrowed them basically and the other thing is there was always a question mark in the first film as to whether deckard himself was a replicant was harrison ford a replicant in the director's cut it is made much more clear that ford may well be a replicant there are more sort of hints 
uh, added into the script that Ford is a replicant. So the we Blade Runner was 1982. Uh, the director's cut was uh, 10 years later. And then in 2007, Ridley Scott released the final cut. And this runs exactly the same length as the original, one hour, 57 minutes. But... It doesn't have the happy ending. It doesn't have the narration. There are more special effects have been added. There were just added scenes of the city. There were more special effects. And, and, and the special effects that looked a bit dodgy in 1982 now have been cleaned up to look perfect. So my favourite version is actually the final cut. But I could quite happily sit and watch all three. Because all three are entertaining science fiction movies. A bit hard-hitting. As I say, they're a little bit violent, but they also have this amazing theme running through them. And and all they want is more life. And Rugod had a at the end of the film makes this as he's dying, makes this incredible speech about what he's seen, and he talks about tears in the rain. And uh, it's a script, part of the script he wrote himself. He looked at what had been written, wasn't happy with it, and went away and rewrote it. Uh, and it's just the most beautiful scene at the end. This guy who's been so violent, this guy who has been so suddenly actually takes on a degree of humanity and you end up feeling sorry for him uh, and you wish he could live longer because you could see his potential. Um, but there he is. And, and in the original narration, the character played by Harrison Ford says, I don't know why he saved my life, but I did see something in him that spoke of the value of life. So my favourite is the director's cut. Uh, it's the final cut. Uh, but I, I, I will quite happily say it much of it. That is absolutely some of the most comprehensive answers I have ever heard to any questions I've ever asked. Andy, thank you so much for, for spending time talking to us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Any time, Giles. And any film. <laughs> So, Phil, that was Andy Godfrey. What do you think? Well, man nearly put me out of a job. <laughs> I was, um, no, I, it was really good fun to listen to someone who's just so passionate about something like that. Like mm. like a lot of our guests that we've had, like, you know, like, basically, you just you just sit and listen when people like that talk. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're going to be much more likely to learn something if you just sit there and just go, hey, man, you just do your thing. And, yeah. and you know what? I would be fine with doing that in person or in a, an interview setting any day with that guy. I thought he was fascinating. Yeah, he was great. He's the uh, film editor for Sorted Magazine, and he's got a really kind of sort of down-to-earth vibe in, his, in the way he writes that mm-hmm. kind of ha- totally hides the fact that he's an absolute walking font of knowledge yeah. when it comes to cinema. And it was like, oh, oh, well, this is an interesting vision of the future for Giles, you know? <laughs> and it's like I could, <laughs> I could see myself turning into worse things. Do you know what I mean? No, I think turning into someone, someone like that, you could do worse, couldn't you? Yeah. So just before we get on to Finding the Faith in the Film, I just wanted to talk about what I'm calling okay. Deckard in the Me Too era. Now, it's probably worth noting before we get started that not all agenda politics necessarily stands up to modern scrutiny. I don't know if you remember, there's a scene where Deckard forces a kiss on Rachel and yes, whether she likes it towards the end, she certainly doesn't seem to be... It's not... It's definitely not enthusiastic consent, is it? Not as much as it could have been. <laughs> not, not, not that enthusiastic. So I think the implication is that he thinks if she's just a machine, then perhaps he can do what he wants to her. And he's very slowly, very slowly figuring out that that's not okay. Mm. So I think the general takeaway from this is to treat everyone, man, woman or machine, with basic respect. Not necessarily for their sake, but for what it says about you as a person. Yeah. Also... And this is a long shot, but it might just help prevent the machine uprising, which would be nice, you know. I've, I, you know, I've, I've got a lot of things on 
and mm. it, you know the machine uprising is honestly just going to set me back at least a few days Great. you would not believe how much a nuclear apocalypse really messes up my deadlines you know now it's time for <sighs> Finding the faith in the film. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's getting harder and harder to come up with different ways of doing that. <laughs> just, just a sense of, of defeat in that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! Awesome. I, I did an exam today, so I'm 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 yeah. all bur- I'm burnt out today. So yeah, yeah. I'm doing my best. <laughs> okay, so for the purposes of this episode, we're going to be talking about Blade Runner and its sequel, Blade Runner 2049. Simply for being contrary, I'm going to start at the end and just have a quick chat about Blade Runner 2049. There's some fascinating stuff to say about that film, but not too much in terms of faith parallels that, that at least I could see. The central crux of that film is about the birth of a child to a replicant, isn't it? Yeah. So it's the birth of a child heralds the freedom for an oppressed people. So basically, we're talking about uh, a messiah figure coming, you know, mm-hmm. that will sort of effectively lead the the replicants out of, out of slavery. And we've talked in the past about how even secular filmmakers can't get away from the story of jesus and the concept that it's it's almost mm-hmm. like the the story's like hardwired in there do you know it's what quite, i mean it's quite societally ingrained i think in the yeah, public consciousness definitely and then there's a brilliant bit that um Kay, uh, or joe uh, ryan gosling's character says when he's talking to his boss he says something like if something is born it has a soul which i thought was like a really just an absolutely beautiful it, well it's yeah. a beautiful line in and of itself and then you think well why would k have been told that in the first place and i thought well that's clearly must have been used as a form of like oppression we have souls so therefore we are uh, entitled to more rights than you are do you know what i mean yeah it seems like a bit of a sweeping statement that's used for a control you know like that's yeah because I, I, it's not necessarily it's a great line but it doesn't necessarily yeah mean it's true and the way it's <laughs> the way he kind of delivers it with such innocence and the way he kind of uses it as a as a rebuff to to sort of killing killing the the child of, of rachel is i just mm. find that fascinating in my heart of hearts uh and i'm sure you know the film geek community will come for me but in my heart of hearts blade runner 2049 is the superior film out of the two i really like villeneuve i really like where he reuses rain i think the the payoffs in some areas are, are stronger mm. and the emotional beats are, are hit better but then again you can't how can i put it you can't disentangle the two part of the reason why blade runner 2049 is so good is because of all the knowledge you've got in built in from blade runner do you know what i mean yeah i feel, I, I do see what you're saying i feel like 2049 is possibly the better constructed piece of filmmaking but mm. but the the amount of the the amount that the original informs it it's just hard to discount yeah. it completely you've, you've got to You've got to have seen the other one. You've got to yeah. have understood the other one and to be deeply sort of ingrained in the lore of the other one as well. And I, I can agree with that. I, I can agree that 2049 was a better crafted piece of filmmaking. But the significance of the first one is yeah. just, it just can't be denied, basically. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about the Fires of Orc line that Roy uses. When Roy and Leon arrive at the eye lab run by Hannibal Chu, you know, the the, the little fella that kind of makes the eyes. Yeah, the, yeah, the yeah I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, yeah. which freaked me out that scene <laughs> yeah okay, like, quite right too just some eyes you know what I mean yeah not great so R- Roy says fire of the angels fell deep thunder rolled around their shores burning with the fires of orc 
Have you any idea where that comes from? I mean, <laughs> considering the, the the title of our podcast, no, but I've got a, I could make an educated guess. <laughs> well, I thought it was a quote from Paradise Lost by John Milton, but it's actually from British poet and visionary William Blake. Have you ever heard of Blake? He's, yes, he was an yes, artist. Yes, he was yes, Christian. Yes. He was an artist. He was a poet. He's the one that came up with. Um, Tiger, tiger, burning bright through the forest of the night. What mm-hmm. immortal hand or eye could frame my fearful symmetry? Now, Blake was either... He was either totally off with the fairies <laughs> or he was playing, like, 12-dimensional chess. You know, we never... And <laughs> those two things look pretty much the same. Do you know what I mean? Six of one, half a dozen of the other, right? At that point. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So he wrote these kind of uh, books of sort of like prophecy... But they're not—they're not really prophecies in the Nostradamus sense of the word. They're more like um, more like allegories, you know. Mm. And obviously, these allegories that he's writing are heavily influenced by Paradise Lost, which is heavily influenced by the Bible, and he's yes. influenced by the Bible, yes, and so yes, on and yes. so forth, you know. So, yeah. believe it or not, that line that Roy says is actually a misquote. Apparently, um, it's uh, "Fire of the angels, rise, deep thunder." rolled around their shores, burning with the fires of Orc. So, Blake created a mythology that was a blend of allegory and prophecy. Now, the character, Orc, is the actual name of a character that represents uh, rebellion. You know, he's meant to be like the spirit of rebellion. Yeah. So, in that line, what Batty is doing, he's identifying himself as a rebel and an angel. So, who does that lead us to? That sounds sort of like Lucifer. Do you know what? I flip and love you sometimes. Do you know what, do you know not what I mean? On, not only because because you got the right person, but also you got the right name. Do you Does, know what Lucifer means? Doesn't it mean like the... I don't think it's the fallen one. No, I think it's the alternative. No, no the alternative is... Um, oh, that's No, that's Satan. Yeah. So Satan means the accuser. It could be used in a court of law sort of thing. Ha mm. Satan, you know, and... But this... Lucifer means morning star. If you think about it, a star that you could see in the morning after dawn means a star that shines brighter than all the other stars. So how much do you know about Lucifer's origin story, for want of a better phrase? I I know that, well, I say I know this, like, Mm -hmm. from what I think I know is that he was, or made a bid for God's like sort of like position as it were either way, he did did something that really naffed God off and then um, God just went right off with you Sling your up, yeah, and then just chucks him out of heaven. And Lucifer was like, "Fine, I'm gonna go to the, I'm gonna go to Mustafa." So, <laughs> <laughs> and and That's... that and that, my friends is the story of Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's pretty much it, uh, Mustafa aside. So <laughs> biblical references to this are a bit scant. So what is largely believed is that Satan uh, fell from heaven or got kicked out of heaven because of his pride. So he was an archangel. He was the he was exceedingly beautiful and wonderful and the rest of it. This gets covered in like Isaiah 14, 12 and... Uh, Ezekiel 28 that's in those passages they're referring to a bloke called the king of Tyre which also could be referring not only to the guy the, the, an actual man but also to the spirit behind him if that makes sense okay so Satan is the highest of all angels the anointed cherub the most beautiful of all God's creations but he's not happy where he is instead Satan desires to be God to essentially kick God off his throne and take over and rule the universe. That's and this a, is all, naturally. Yeah, I mean we've we've, we've all, all been, there, been there, you know. So the the quote from Isaiah fourteen, verse twelve is how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, yet you 
you who weakened the nations, you know? So right from the start there, we've got a, a sort of like Roy as Satan kind of thing going on. Do you mm. know what I mean? Or Roy as Lucifer sort of thing. Yeah. Which kind of brings me to, and I've, I've just watched it uh, again just recently, when the replicants, when Roy gets to ask Tyrell for more life, you know? Oh, yeah, and of course. And he sort of yeah. goes into his bedroom. It's really tragic, like, because you can see the desperation that Roy's got, but you can also mm. see sort of almost like the horror that Tyrell yeah. sees is like, oh my god, what have I actually created? Well, the thing is, Tyrell doesn't see it until right until the end. Tyrell is incredibly proud of him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he's, he's... And they have this little bit about, well, what about this? And we're like, yeah, we found that they've cellular rege- degeneration at this point. And so I feel like Tyrell would have given him more life if he could have done. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, but it just simply was not yeah, able was to not be done. Yeah, option. Yeah, definitely. So, this is a bit of a weird take, but I think of Tyrell as like an atheist's idea of God. He's kind of all-powerful, but cruel and arbitrary to an extent, you know? Mm. More specifically, I think of him as Nietzsche's idea of God, Friedrich Nietzsche. There's this quote where it says, God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mighty of all of us that the world has yet owed, uh, owned has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe this blood off for us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festival of atonement, what sacred game shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? It's um, heavy going. You know what I mean? Like, I mean... It's pretty intense, Nietzsche. You I mean, know? I, mean so. I know, I know, I'm an atheist, but that's that's that's, <laughs> like, that's like for you know, just for mainly for reasons of of logic. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, yeah, crime it is like man needs a beer. Yeah, it is pretty full on. So that is from 1882, Die Frohliche Wiesenschaft. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, which is sometimes right. translated. <laughs> It's, it's sometimes translated as the joyful pursuit of knowledge and understanding or the gay science. It it doesn't sound that joyful. Do you know what I mean? Not really. It sounds, yeah. um, well, it just sounds like the opposite. In fact, yeah. it, it sounds really bloody depressing. And so again, I'm an atheist. So there we have it. We have this idea of sort of Tyrell as God and, and the uh, replicants as angels, which is something that is is underscored even further in Blade Runner 2049 when mm. Jared Leto's character Wallace refers to them as his angels, you know? So it's we're constantly made to think of these these characters as being yeah. like angels. You sort know? of more on the nose with the second one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, this one might be a bit intense. I might be stretching it a little bit here. I might cut this out. We'll see how we go, you know? All right. But I wanted to I wanted to talk about the idea of <laughs> Deckard's suspicion that he's a replicant. Okay? Yes. The now, the, the age old discussion yeah. since it came out. <laughs> Well, beyond, beyond that, it's not just whether he is a replicant or not. It's whether he whether he suspects he is in the film. That's what I'm interested in. That's what you're saying, um, yeah. Now, it's possible I'm projecting this onto Deckard rather than actually being there. But I think Deckard may be suspecting that he's a replicant throughout this film. Obviously, uh, we see in the director's cut the daydream of the unicorn and... Rachel asks him if he's ever taken the Voight-Kampf test himself, which is obviously what you test to see if somebody's human or a replicant or not. So they're feeding the idea into us quite early on, you know? Yeah. And all that is arguably confirmed by Gaff, played by Edward James Olmos, character leaves him the origami unicorn. You know, it's a little Mm -hmm. way of saying, 
I know what's in your head. You've been thinking about unicorns. How could I know if you're thinking about unicorns? It's because all your memories are on a file somewhere, just yeah, like yeah, yeah. Deckard does with, with Rachel. So I think for a person to question their identity means to question their place in this world and also the nature of the world itself. And this made me think of what it must be like to go from being like a straight up out and out atheist to becoming a Christian. Hmm. Now, I couldn't relate to this very easily because whilst I decided for myself to follow Jesus at 14, I'd always believed in him as a result of my upbringing. So this leads me to one question. Phil, who's your favorite Greek philosopher? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Bit no, of a curveball for you. I get, I get that. I get, well, I get asked this all the time. So no, um, Yeah. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, Aristotle is my boy because right. he wrote, down poetics which is the first rules for drama but today we're going to look at plato's thought experiment called the cave have you ever heard of this one i have heard of this actually yeah we have talked about this it was at the matrix episode because we're talking might about... be natalie talked about it natalie talked about it yeah i remember now yeah mm-hmm. so in this allegory there's a cave and there's a group of people who have lived their lives chained to the wall of the cave and they've been mm-hmm. there all their lives and they are facing a blank wall now the mouth of the cave is is behind them mm. and they can see shadows projected on the wall from objects passing in front of a fire or from the from the light behind them and they give names to these shadows the shadows are essentially the prisoner's reality but they are not completely accurate representations of the real world so the shadows represent the fragments of reality that we can normally perceive through our senses, while the objects under the sun represent the true forms of objects that we can only perceive through reason. Mm. So Plato talks about how the philosopher is like a prisoner who is freed from the cave and comes to understand that the shadows on the wall are actually not the direct source of the images seen. And he suggests that like a philosopher aims to understand and perceive the higher levels of reality. However, the other inmates of the cave do not even want to leave their prison because they... They don't know anything better. You with me? Yeah, I mean, if it's all you knew. It's like yeah. when people don't leave Warrington. I'm just like, oh my, <laughs> oh, my sweet summer child. There's a whole world out there, you know? Like, just, You don't have to drink John Smith's. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now, this might be a stretch, but for me, I thought Plato's cave could be compared to a replicant realizing they're a replicant. And their memories have been given to them as a form of control. So if you found out all the memories you have, the things you take comfort in, the things you're proud of, the things you're ashamed of weren't real, they're like they're almost like the shackles that have been holding you in place. Arguably, you'd be able to live a life free of all the hang-ups and stuff that has just held you back from that have come from those memories. Arguably, yeah, because if they were fictional, or at the yeah. very least not your own, yeah, um, I th- I think it also works for the idea of a non-believer coming to believe in God, you know? Mm. So there's the realisation that you're part of a wider story and a much more complex narrative. And the idea that the being that created the cosmos also created you, and he did so for a purpose, must be like seeing those shapes directly for the first time when all you've seen are the shadows of the wall. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Like, you know, yeah. you, your reality was... <clears throat> your reality was was fictitious because all you saw was those shadows all you saw was the wall yeah. and then in in your sort of like um interpretation of this like that's the same as like god is not real and yeah. everything you know of god not being real is the fictitious part 
Yeah, but it's also worth pointing out that the cave allegory can also work the other way. So yeah. you could apply it to a person's journey from any faith to uh, non-belief. I've been sort of looking into a lot of stuff about the FLDS at the moment, the fundamental fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, like the sort of Oof. extreme Mormons and heard it sort of applied in that area. Bit of light and even, then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, just for the fun, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you could apply it to sort of ex-Mormon friends who would also sort of see that cave allegory. Of course, Do you know what yeah, I mean? Of course. Oh, well, uh, yeah. I mean, having spoken to, you know, ex-Mormon people, that yeah, you can see the the difference that they feel uh, when yeah. they, they sort of are no longer part of that community. And they say, hang on yeah. a minute, this, this wasn't the way that everyone else sees things. This is... Yeah, exactly. And this is quite alarming. Yeah, very much so. The last thing I want to talk about is Roy Batty's last act. When Roy knows he only has minutes left to live, he does an absolute 180 and goes from trying to kill Deckard to trying to save him. I don't suppose you can remember any of his any of his lines. What, the speech at the end? Yeah, the speech at the end. <laughs> I actually know the whole thing as far as I'm aware. Go for it. Go for it. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I've watched sea beams sea glitter beams at the entrance of the Tannhauser Gate. All of these moments will be lost, lost in time, time. Like, tears like tears in, in rain. rain. Time oh to die. <sighs> Flipping. Rutger Hauer wrote that himself, you know. Like, that is, that is his own stuff that he came up with. That is insane. When we lost Rutger Hauer, we, we lost such a beautiful wealth of knowledge and experience. I know, right? What a bloody guy! I'll never. Well, this reason I know that off by heart because, although I think I got one or two words wrong, but not flipping far off. If you did get anything wrong, I didn't notice it. I was doing a church announcement recently, and I was up at the stage, up up on the front talking. And sometimes, uh, my friend John and I, we will just put things in there to entertain each other, you know, and completely. (laughs) (laughs) So I was talking about like a project where we're talking about, about like recording people's memories. And I said, because if we don't record them, they'll be lost like tears in rain. (laughs) <laughs> and the problem was John wasn't in the room at the time oh. so I just get this sea of silence coming back at me it's hey, like, I tell you what I bet there was someone there just like bloody hell he wrote that himself that's <laughs> I've never heard so so wonderful in all my life what changed man or woman yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah or dog definitely what, there was a dog that listened and was just like oh my god wolf you know <laughs> Anyway, let's get back to it. So, yeah. so Batty goes from trying to kill Deckard to saving him. Mm. So, why does he do this? This dude is, has been trying to to execute him, or sorry, retire him. For all Roy <laughs> knows, he'll keep on killing his kind after Roy has died. And it got me thinking that Roy Batty's last act in the world is an act of mercy. And this reminded me so much, and it might be fresh in my mind because we did Passion of Christ last time. Yeah. was that, that one of the last things that Jesus does is he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. That's Luke 23, verse yeah. 34. And it was just that thought of showing mercy and compassion for your executors, you know, for your, for your executioners. Yeah, I think so. But also I feel as though, from a different perspective, like mm-hmm. I feel as though Roy Batty in that moment is it's more human of him to show mercy to Deckard than it is mm-hmm. for him to let him fall and die. And the thing that he wants most of all is to be truly human and to have a, a long lifespan and to live a life of his own. And I, yeah. I, I think that's completely 
in line with his character development at that point. Like, yeah. you know, he he's he's not looking to he's looking for justice for himself. Mm-hmm. But it would be completely unjust for him to let Deckard die just because he was angry. Yeah. So Do you know what? I, I, I couldn't agree with you more and personally I think the film agrees with you because it's not technically the last thing he does the last thing he does is let go of the dove that's in his arms isn't it technically yeah what does a dove represent well doves represent uh peace they represent the holy spirit there's that bit in matthew 316 when jesus is being baptized and the line is at that moment heaven opened and he saw the spirit of god descending like a dove and alighting on on jesus you know yeah but the a dove more often is well often has been used to represent the human soul. Hmm. I couldn't find the origin of that belief, but that's what the, that's one of the things it has. So I think this scene, the dove taking flight, kind of implies Roy's soul leaving his body, and it's just it's just beautiful. It's know? just per- it's perfect. It's perfect in terms of a visual motif to mm-hmm. represent that. You know, like it's just simple, simple and beautiful, and. Yeah, it's genius piece of work there from uh, from our Ridders. <laughs> <You know>? Ridders. <laughs> great bunch of lads. Awesome. Great bunch of lads. A great bunch of lads, definitely. Okay, ladies and gents, that wraps up our Finding the Faith in the Film section. We hey. have some reviews. I, I won't like go through something. all of them. I know, right? Yeah. We have one review that said that we were perfectly formed. And that is, <laughs> she said, so this is from KP over Apple Podcasts, who says... Great hosts, fascinating insights, and engaging guest speakers. All crammed into the perfect length to accompany me on a quick walk or entertain me for about half of my lunch hour. This is from KP, who I'm pretty sure is Kate Parker. I mean, considering our episodes are about 45 minutes long, flipping, how long is Kate getting for a, a lunch hour? That's what I want to well, know. I mean, I wouldn't mind that, but also, how long is your how long is your long walks? <laughs> like, if a quick walk's 45 minutes, there's a long walk, like, three hours, then... <laughs> Thank you, KP. We think you're pretty great too. So uh, that's all for now, ladies and gents. If you have been, thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out our sister show, The Media Mag Podcast, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and The Book of Face. If you yes. want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at, at underscore Giles Goff or at uh, Biffy B, B-I-F-F-I, capital B for Phil. That's me. That's everything. Phil, have you had a good time? Well, Blade Runner will always be one of my favourite films that I've ever seen. Um, mm-hmm. So yes, I absolutely. I got to quote. I got to do the tears in rain speech on my on the podcast. So yeah, no, I'm absolutely fine, man. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> mate, you absolutely smashed that. Awesome. Thank you for listening, guys. See you next time for our upcoming series on horror. Bye. Bye. Gordon Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil. Editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh. And our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Got a film as a Dask production. Please rate and review. Unless it's a one star, in which case, please drop off your handwritten review at one of our offices on the off-world colonies. And provided you pass the Voight Kampf test, we'll take your thoughts into consideration.